Okay, Corey. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to talk a little bit about what is referred to as diseases of despair. And there's a couple of researchers who have come up with the term diseases of despair, and they've broken them down into four different types. Okay. So there's four Mm -hmm. basic types of despair. We're going to go through each one. I'm going to ask your uh, opinion about how they resonate with you personally. And then I'll throw it a little bit of information for people just to kind of let them know how it relates to drug and alcohol use right now, how it relates to the toxic drug crisis in North America, et cetera. And then we'll look at some factors. And uh, what we'll do later after that is uh, I'm just going to read a few paragraphs from the book I'm reading right now, The Urge by Eric Fisher. And um, yeah, and then I'll get your take on those as well on a personal level. Okay. These so, are all live and as it happens, because this is new for me. So <laughs> We must add that side note there. Yes. Okay. So we're talking diseases of despair. The first one is cognitive despair, which denotes thoughts connected to defeat, guilt, hopelessness, and pessimism. It may make a person perceive other people's actions as hostile and discount the value of long-term outcomes. So that's the first one, cognitive despair. Have you experienced any of those terms yourself? Yes. (laughs) All all of the above, for sure. Yeah. For sure. That is a pretty good summation of how I felt in the, particularly maybe in the early and mid parts of my addictive behavior, for sure. Yeah. We've talked about this. We both have a certain type of mindset that is prone to cognitive despair, I think. Yeah. Um, we both tend to see things as the default setting a little bit darker than we should and, or not, let me say we should, I mean, I understand the evolutionary benefit of <laughs> angst, but, um, but yeah, we've talked about it and the hopelessness one and pessimism, I think is, those are two huge factors in addiction. Yeah. You know, and I'm going to back it up further. Like, you know, I just said it, that was early on in addiction. I think that sense of pessimism or the sense of cynicism and teetering on hopelessness was present earlier in my life. And, you know, in a meeting this week, I said, you know, I, I, I recall being a, a kid, like six years old saying, what is the point of this? Right. If we all die, what's the point? Right. So and experiencing, the, uh, experiencing a death in your family early. How does that play out for somebody who's trying to reconcile their future as a child? You just, yeah. I mean, of course, that's going to, you're going to have some questions, right? Well, I, yeah. And I think that that is, a, in fact, quite a common trait of someone who has experienced early childhood loss is that question or that feeling of hopelessness or like uh, pessimism, cynicism about the whole show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Existential angst for sure. That's a driver. Yeah. Okay. Uh, The second one they've got listed here, if I don't have the people who are responsible for this definition listed, where are they now? Oh, uh, uh, Case and Deaton, that's the two. It's a man and a woman. Uh, They're psychologists, I believe, who came up with this this model. I got to credit them for that. Emotional despair refers to feelings of sadness, irritability, loneliness, and apathy, and may partly impede the process of creating and nourishing interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. So this one, I would say more aptly describes me in the last 
couple of years before going off work and in, in addictive behavior that, that the emotional things that were weighing on me were getting in the way of relationship building, of nurturing healthy relationships, of being, you know, honest and vulnerable and, and in, in thereby in my tendency to isolate. Absolutely. I a hundred percent agree so far. And that the first one is kind of like a, a default setting for me as well. And then the emotional despair was what I believe led to the, the problem in a more acute sense. Yeah, I think so too. I think it, it's like, it's the next, the next big building block on top of the cognitive despair. Absolutely. Yeah. So the third one is behavioral despair, which describes risky, reckless, or self-destructive acts reflecting little to no consideration of the future, such as self-harm, reckless driving, drug use, risky, uh, risky sexual behavior, and others. So behavioral despair, risky, reckless, and self-destructive acts with no consideration of the future or little consideration of the future. Mm -hmm. So I think that this speaks to like that front loading, immediate gratification you know, you know I, I knew a person in one of my meetings who called it the fuckets. <laughs> right, right, yeah. It, you know, like where you just you, you don't care about the long term consequence. It's the short term, short term thinking entirely, yeah. and that dopamine response. That's kind of what we're talking about there. Absolutely, and it's a little bit. When I looked at it, I thought maybe it's a chicken and an egg scenario that people can get confused about when somebody's using drugs. Right, it's like. Well, maybe their behavior is this way because they're using drugs. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas I believe many times it's that the behavior, because of the first two items, you don't believe you have a future. Therefore, what is the purpose of long-term goals? And uh, with uh, loneliness and a lack of connection, you're basically, you have no support to back you up. So those two, the first two things make the third thing so attractive, right? Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Because a, if, if you think about it, like a, a piece of cake, liter like a literal piece of cake gives everyone sugar, gives mm -hmm. everyone like a, a bit of a dopamine kick where you're just like, oh my God, this is so good. Mm -hmm. But for the person who is lonely or the person who doesn't have connection, doesn't have all these other things that we've been talking about and that we were talking about in just in that last conversation, that's where the hooks can come in. The hooks of addiction can come in. And I use a piece of cake, but I could be talking about, I could be talking about a drug, a chemical drug just as easily as well, for sure. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the setup, right? It's the setup. Yeah. And not the, and not the substance, uh, necessarily. And lastly, we have biological despair. We're talking diseases of despair, of which there are four types. Lastly, biological despair, which relates to dysfunction or dysregulation of the body's stress reactive system and or to hormonal instability. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that one? This to me is like that feeling when I was going to work of noticing in hindsight or even in the moment, noticing an elevated heart rate, um, noticing that as on my drive to work, I would get to the same place in my town, a block and a half away from the hospital, and feel the same way physiologically. 
<laughs> and that sometimes that would relate to a taste in my mouth, mm-hmm. you know, that I talked about in my first episode, you know, that the, the feeling of anxiety and stress, the feeling of an ele- a perpetually constant uh, elevation of cortisol and yes. adrenaline and, and how that could get enmeshed with a sort of an addictive symptom or an urge. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And so this is why environment and not changing not changing the environment, not changing the other factors is a, such a recipe for um, risk. Yeah. It, and uh, it's interesting how you can look at these four in the way we just did. It's sort of a uh, one, two, three, four knockout punch, right? Isn't it? Yeah. And the fourth one keeps you in the pocket. It's the one that locks you in. You've got the third one is the hook, right? That's yeah. the one that staggers you. And then you're, you're down for the count and the fourth keeps you from getting up. Yeah. So. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Interesting, right? (laughs) Very. Yeah. So what I'm going to, I'll just, I'm going to give a little more of a explanation as to the definition of, uh, and factors that are contributing to diseases of despair right now. And after I do that, then we'll, we'll look at a couple paragraphs. Okay. So diseases of despair, um, we talk, we, we talk the first four basic types, and then there's some effects that are going on right now, such as being under the influence of despair for an extended amount of time may lead to the development of one or more of the diseases of despair, such as, so you've got diseases of despair causing suicidal thoughts or drug or alcohol abuse. If an individual has a disease of despair, there is an increased risk of death from despair. So we we see that these diseases are, they're a type of social disease, really, right? And they lead to deaths of despair, which are classified as suicides, drug or alcohol overdoses, or liver failure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we got those three that are going on right now. Uh, A little bit of backstory on, we're going to talk... I'll use the U.S. data and I'll tie it into Canada, but we're talking North America here. So mortality and morbidity rates, which uh, morbidity, if you don't know, is the rate of incidence of disease in a population as denoted Mm -hmm. by a percentage. Uh, So mortality and morbidity rates in the United States have been decreasing for decades. As we go along, things have generally gotten better. If we look at uh, from 1970 to about 2013 mortality rates fell by 44 percent and morbidity was on the decline even amongst the elderly so we're doing pretty good cardiovascular disease and cancer the two biggest killers in middle age are also on the decline so those are still like we're still improving there even with obesity being uncontrolled especially in the u.s but in canada as well so we still have those those two there, and we're not considering obesity being under control at all. Despite those improvements, white, middle-aged Americans are experiencing an increase in premature deaths, especially in those caused by suicide, drug overdose, and alcohol liver disease. I will add to this that although middle-aged white Americans are increasing rapidly, they have just caught up to the to black and Hispanic ethnicities who have been suffering at higher levels for quite some time. So yeah. this is the first time that we're seeing, especially in our generation, 
what's happening is all of a sudden there is almost, well, as, as of the latest data, I believe there's now no difference in races uh, <laughs> across North America for uh, diseases of despair that end in deaths of despair. So we are all, yeah, isn't it interesting? And it's particularly between uh, the ages 20 to 44. So there's two factors that they've looked at that are playing into this. One is education level. So if you are, if you have an education level that's below or less than a bachelor's degree, you're at increased risk of dying from diseases of despair. And then interestingly, um, people who live in rural areas. So in the, I think the study they're looking at was mostly in the Appalachian areas of the United States. So uh, it's uh, West Virginia down, I think, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, a ridge, that ridge on the east side of the, the state. So in that area, people who are more uh, living in more rural areas were more at risk. And the first thing that came for, to mind for me was that maybe that's because of a lack of communal support. Like they just don't have the resources to... Like, mm -hmm. I think you're more, you're probably more prone to self-isolate just because of the kind of the attitude and also the, the actual geo geographical location problem. You simply don't yeah. have the people around you. So, um, not that cities are, you know, by their nature, more, uh, communal, but you know what I mean? You do probably have greater access to, to healthcare though. Yeah, absolutely. And that yeah. might be that might be the sole factor, right? Mm. They they haven't elucidated what what is causing that, but that's that's part of the uh part of it as far as an, the numbers game is concerned. So if you've got a bachelor's degree of education at least, you have some protection and uh they they think that that plays into your your outlook for the future, right? Preliminary indications in Canada and the United States demonstrate that the trajectory of drug overdose-related deaths was exacerbated by the pandemic. In Canada, drug overdose-related deaths stabilized prior to the onset, onset of COVID-19. I'll put a little addendum in there. And by stabilized, they mean our atrocious numbers were continuing, not right. getting worse, not, <laughs> right. not getting better, just leveling out, okay, which is yeah. still horrific. Yeah. So in Canada, drug overdose deaths, overdose related deaths stabilized prior to the onset of COVID-19, but increased after the onset of COVID-19. In the United States, drug overdose related deaths increased prior to and accelerated after the onset of COVID-19. So I'll ask you there, I guess, what do you think is going on as far as uh, those numbers are concerned? Like they seem to be having a, a significant impact on uh, death from these diseases of despair. Yeah. So emotional despair, way up. Biological despair, way up. Cognitive despair, probably up. Mm -hmm. So each one of those factors is probably significantly increased. Isolation yes. increased. Mm -hmm. Resources decreased. Right. Um, like resources in terms of healthcare, in terms of social resources, in terms of human connection, all of those things dropped off. Uh, financial resources, financial lost, resources, losing their jobs plays into yeah. um, when I looked at those numbers, I thought hopelessness, right? Yes. When you're looking to the future and you're in the middle of a lockdown, all of a sudden your world's been turned upside down. 
You don't know whether or not you're going to have a job. You don't know how long things are going to go on like this. You don't know if there's an end game. These are very real and impactful psychological factors for human beings that Mm -hmm. uh, there's actually quite a few studies going on right now to sort of suss out what kind of an impact we're looking at. But I thought it was interesting that that's thus far having that much of a significant impact on our, our toxic drug crisis. Yeah. And, and to go back to what you said at the beginning, I think probably, although it impacted everyone, the people with less education, maybe without a degree. So maybe there was less job security or their jobs were different so that it, it, they weren't essential services. Maybe it's Um, a meaningfulness too, right? Yeah. Uh, The, the meaningful, uh, how meaningful your job is. If you have less than a bachelor's degree education, you're more likely to be in a factory type uh, production job where sometimes that's fine for people, but other people are going to find it difficult to derive real meaning and get job satisfaction from that Mm -hmm. kind of a environment. Mm -hmm. So I think that plays into it as well. All right, Corey. So what I'm going to do now is read you four paragraphs that I have highlighted from the book, The Urge by Eric Fisher, which I'm currently just about finished. If I would stop highlighting stuff, I would probably be done, but um, there's a lot of good information in there. So I've got four paragraphs that pertain to our previous discussion that I'm going to read here and I'll just get your thoughts after each one. Okay, cool. Yep. Paragraph one. The Canadian psychologist Bruce Alexander has articulated this idea as his dislocation theory of addiction, which asserts that the most important and fundamental cause of addiction is not the biological effect of a drug or some inborn vulnerability to addiction in in individuals, but rather a society's wounds. Importantly, That pain doesn't need to be the kind of concrete loss, such as the poverty and disease experienced by any culture or group that we're going to talk about. There is also a psychological dislocation that can be just as toxic, such as being torn from a culture and traditional spirituality, losing freedom and self-determination, and lacking opportunities for joy and self-expression. Even for those of us who are not suffering from such tangible deprivations today, We are just as vulnerable as our ancestors, if not more so, to the psycho-spiritual ones. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's that's a big one. Yeah, yeah, certainly rings true for me. The thing it took me back to is how I was feeling. You know, I I was divorced, became a single parent, had a lot of a lot of bills to pay. A lot, you know, financially, I became sort of locked into a into a pretty desperate feeling state which took away some of the feeling of freedom or feeling of choice that I had with, with my job in in particular. And so it, you know, the thing, the word that comes up is like, it was, it really locked me in. Yeah. When I read this, I see people's opportunities and autonomy being taken away by circumstances that are out of their control. And while I don't necessarily agree that it, it's, you know, it's not, this was just an assertion that, and it was one theory that was put forward at a time. Um, we know that there's many factors of addiction and you can't nail it down to one, but it's interesting how this psychologist 
kind of looked around, saw the cultures that were suffering. The First Nations cultures are a great example of what happens when you you take away people's purpose, their meaning, their spiritual connection, their ability to live their life the way they want to live their life and lock mm-hmm. them into a, a paradigm shift that they had you know, no interest in being a part of, right? Yeah. Hopelessness is still an undervalued human condition. Isn't it though? Eh? I mean, yeah. it, the more I look, the more I read, it just keeps coming up. Mm-hmm. It's hopelessness. And uh, I used to laugh about it in pharmacy because I would always, uh, I had a joke with a, a pharmacist early on about how our situation was despondent. Mm-hmm. Like there was no way we could, there was no hope for winning. Right. Yeah. And at, this was, you know, previous to my issues. And I, I look back at that and I think, huh, despondence is a big factor. Yeah. And it, although we were joking about it, there was a lot of truth and still is, well, not still is, there's more truth to it than ever in the profession of pharmacy. And I'm sure if you talk to any nurse who's practicing right now, despondence would be uh, something they could use to describe the situation. Oh my God. Yeah. There, there's no hopeful language being used in a, in the profession. I don't think. No, uh, no hopeful language and optimism is hard to generate. Like, I mean, I was, yeah. I was just talking with a, a pharmacist that I've known for a long time yesterday. And I tried to take an optimistic kind of turn on the conversation when we were talking about how pharmacists are going to be able to prescribe and, you know, just watching that bounce off this pharmacist as if no, they immediately like it's not, it doesn't matter at all. They're going to screw it up. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I just, I mean, I, I couldn't keep up the facade, you know, no. I'm like I know that we mm-hmm. all know it. They're, you know, it's they just, the evidence is overwhelming, but anyway, yeah. So that's that one. Uh, the next paragraph will be shorter. I promise. So here we go. This is the core of addiction as dislocation theory. Beyond soothing the concrete effects of physical dislocation, people use drugs to address an alienation from cultural supports. This kind of alienation is what Emily Durkheim, the founder of modern sociology, called anomie. The social condition of a breakdown of norms and values resulting in an existential lack of connection to meaning and purpose. Both this sense of dislocation and the actions of addiction supply industries, uh, whether that's pharmaceutical or illicit drug supply industries, some scholars argue, are the core drivers of today's opioid epidemic. So she's asserting that the, the condition we discussed before, the addiction as dislocation theory, and the aggressive nature of, especially in the U.S., the marketing of pharmaceuticals, Mm-hmm. Um, we know that played a factor, but you know, what are your thoughts on the on that paragraph so far? That the machine that we speak of so regularly is more harmful than it is good. If it it is generating the feeling of hopelessness, it is taking away the feeling of self determination and autonomy. Then just by that alone, which is a lot, <laughs> then it's doing more harm than it is good. That's what yeah. comes to mind for me. Yeah, yeah. This kind of illustrates the the importance of considering how much you're going to change your lifestyle and maybe profession. If you're in a situation where your profession is, is contributing to your problem, like Mm -hmm. it was for me and you, you can see how dangerous it is 
to continue to sit in that, go back and sit in that environment when, you know, even on a, a large uh, social scale, you can see how these things have a determining factor. Absolutely. Okay. Next one is shorter still. So Case and Deaton, these are the two who, who came up with the diseases of despair, uh, two psychologists, labeled these deaths from suicide, drug overdoses, and alcohol liver diseases, deaths of despair. In 2017, there were more than 150,000 deaths of despair in the United States, more than half the numbers of U.S. combat deaths in World War II, all in one year, and many of them among people in their 20s and 40s. Wow. Yeah. Wow, right? That's how... <laughs> I mean, the only thing I uh, that I would add to this is that they're not considering the the nature of the drug supply. Right. Yeah. Right. So with that statement, what are your uh, thoughts? Oh, you know, in the current trend that you, you know, five minutes, two minutes online, the trend is this promotion of the focus on mental health. Mm -hmm. And obviously that is greatly needed, but just what, what that makes me think is that it is so much worse than we all understand it to Mm -hmm. be. It is a, what a, tragic state of affairs that we're in as a society if that people feel that hopeless and desperate yeah and again i i can't state this enough that the ramifications of hollowing out the core of our population demographic that is already in big big trouble i mean how this is not front and center problem number one in this province i just can't I cannot understand the short-sightedness of our leaders Mm -hmm. on this. Mm -hmm. It's just mind-boggling. I mean, we know that we're going into a situation where we've got an inverted pyramid, basically, population-wise. And now we're talking about taking away. (laughs) You're basically eliminating the support structure right underneath the baby boomers. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen? You know, I mean, it, this is a very uh, a strange situation to be a part of, to watch it unfold and to watch the, to see how much more prominent, um, like even in the pandemic, yes, it, I mean, I understand it was a crazy time for everybody, but nobody is talking about how we are under, the, the situation we are in and have been is way more dangerous yeah. and has been for a long time. Yeah. You know, the, the only other thing that makes me think too, is that we are the people that are in positions of power, the people that are calling the shots are also certainly in despair in their own, in their own way. Oh, sure. I don't think, I think in many times they are not the sort of the victims of financial despair or of, of being powerless or hopeless mm-hmm. because they are the ones that are, that are wielding the sword. But but you can see the the hurt. You can see the the anguish. You know, there was just as an example, and not to get too far into like American politics, but one of the most profound examples of this to me was in the United States two weeks ago, they were voting for the Speaker of the House. And this sort of Republican, Trump Republican, Kevin McCarthy is is trying to get voted in to be the Speaker of the House. And it took like 14 votes and he kept, you know, publicly getting rejected. No, we're not, we don't accept you. And then he, and this is all on camera and he's, you know, trying to rally support and going to this person, going to this person and trying to plead his case and no, you're rejected. And they vote again and he, and he rejected. And and it was like, it was like the child 
on the playground who kept going back and getting rejected. And, and you could just see this guy's sort of psyche on display uh, and the ugliness there and mm-hmm. the, the human despair. Right. And, and this is not someone who I would be supportive of as a, you know, like sort of a, a Donald Trump guy. He was the opposition to him was trying to sort of maintain some or regain some normalcy. Mm-hmm. And he ultimately ended up getting in and the people who, the people on his side, the Republicans on his side were finally caved and weren't able to sort of sustain the pressure. Mm -hmm. And I look at those people too and say, well, there's, there's human despair at play there too, that they couldn't sort of maintain their own boundaries. Right. And finally ended up saying, yeah, fine. And they voted him in. Yeah. And yeah, that, that's a, that's a great example of uh, the state of uh, how the state of politics is. I mean, we know that it's a, a clown show at this point, as far as, yeah. uh, uh, you know, the structure of our leadership in Canada and the States is just, there's nothing left that resembles what you would, I think, describe as a democracy. It's just a yeah. intangible, nebulous cloud of mayhem, <laughs> but uh, it, it does illustrate a good point. And that's that uh, those people are human too, and they are struggling. And uh, maybe the chaos or the lack of action is a, a little bit, um, I, it certainly can't be excused, but you can see that the structure of the the bigger machine is kind of maybe holding back a lot of people from making progress, I guess you could say. Yeah. And we do a really good job of looking way back in history and saying, well, Napoleon, he was crazy and Adolf Hitler was crazy and they had all of this early life stuff that happened to them and and they were on drugs and they were this and they were that. But this too is happening in the present that people are, the people that are making these decisions for us as a society are also in their own way hurting. And and I, I have some empathy for them, but I also want to say like, we have to change that. I would hope that we can find people who are, who have figured out their despair a little bit better <laughs> to rule our, our countries. <laughs> That's my hope at least. <laughs> well, you got to have hope. Uh, like, I, imagine, imagine a campaign, a political <laughs> campaign where the, the politicians says, well, I've, I've really done what I can in the last number of years to, to look at my cognitive despair and <laughs> <laughs> to look at my emotional despair. And I've formulated really good, strong, powerful connections in my life. And I'm doing all I can to, to work on my stress and my anxiety and my feelings of inferiority. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is, I mean, there's problems that, uh, that go back to, uh, I mean, really we've been marketed out of our ability to discern what a good leader even is. Yeah. And to be honest, at this point, what happens in politics is secondary to the structures that lie above it now, which is, you know, like the pharmaceutical companies that were able to do what Purdue did and the, you know, these, these kind of structures until they're held accountable, we are going to constantly be at the mercy of marketing campaigns that are Mm -hmm. too slick for the average Canadian or American to navigate. That includes both of us. Yeah. But the hope is, like you said, if we can if we can increase our understanding as individuals of our own cognitive needs as far as maintenance goes, then perhaps that can have a spillover effect and eventually we'll come to an awareness as a culture that we need to make changes on a big structural uh, structural level. Yeah. So we must tend to the garden that we can touch. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
Do you have and one more there? I realize this last one here is just a spillover of the uh, of what we've already discussed. So I'm going to leave that one and show mercy to you because you uh, navigated those very well. <laughs> <laughs> Incredibly lengthy. <laughs> that was so, fascinating. Really, really interesting. And can you tell us again where this literature came from? The explanation of the diseases of despair. I mean, it's all over the web. Uh, there's if you go on Wikipedia and look at their first like 17 resources, they've all got uh, case and Deaton studies in there that you can look at. Okay. Uh, you can also uh, search case and Deaton themselves and they you'll you'll see the work that they've done. So that's uh, that'll give you all the information on diseases of despair. And then the rest is from Eric Fisher's book, The Urge which is uh, written by a physician who struggled with alcohol himself. And he kind of weaves his own story that's very similar to ours in that he went through the same type of kind of pampered system uh, for healthcare professionals where you have access to supports and you're kind of guided through this thing that still makes absolutely no sense. Mm -hmm. And you have to, you know, he talks about having to just be like, uh, okay. Yeah, uh-huh. I, I'll yeah. do what you say. Just uh, get me through this thing, right? Yeah. Um. And, and then he weaves stories. Uh, it's the most detailed history of the of drug policy I've ever seen. Some of the stuff I've I've run across before, but I've this is the most far reaching. He, mm -hmm. he goes way back, and he really demonstrates the politics of both Democrats, Republicans, and the states. How little it makes a difference who's in power where it's just that all it is is a different kind of coding on the same product, which is, you know, fear-driven mass media campaigns and marketing mm -hmm. to continue the status quo. He refers to the treatment economy down there as the, what does he say, the treatment industrial complex. So it's, <laughs> uh, I like that because it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's quite accurate. Yeah. Um, and when you see how much power they wielded in the 90s especially, once, you know, when basically they were running a like stamp and print campaign for insurance companies. I mean, they had so much money they could push whatever agenda they wanted, but yeah, yeah, I'm rambling on now. Interesting though. I like that. The treatment industrial complex. I can think about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, food for thought and maybe discussion later. All right, Corey, cool. thank you very much for uh, your thoughtful replies. It was really good. All right, Corey, we will talk next time. Thank you. See you soon. Uh, bye everyone.